Tonight I want to talk about the natural movement from wisdom, that deep understanding that John shared with us last night so beautifully, uh, how this moves into compassion, how the expression of this deep understanding is compassion, how understanding expresses itself as it responds to our, any moment in our lives. Two little quotes. Franz Kafka. You can hold back from the suffering of the world, but perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. And someone called Michel de Montaigne says, the man who fears suffering is already suffering from what he fears. The man who fears suffering is already suffering from what he fears. So, this freedom, all of this practice and what we are growing in us is this ability, capacity to live to experience, to know more than know, freedom from all the struggling that we do, all this endless wheel-spinning struggling that we do in the name of trying to be happy. We're caught in our very best efforts to be happy by the efforting itself. It's such a conundrum. It's so ironic the way we are. When we're free from suffering, we're free from eyeing. We're free from myeing. We're free from trying. Everything is exactly the same. I'm just not in the middle of it trying to something it. There's a filling up that we do. We step right. It's like we co-opt life. We somehow requisition what's happening for me and it's my job to something it. Busily, endlessly, exhaustively. And as we practice this simple thing, being here, looking, what's revealed is that game we play over and over. More and more fine, but same old game. And increasingly, the absence of the game. And when there's moments which become more and more appreciated, because there's many moments that get missed initially, more and more appreciation of those moments when we're not in there, increasingly then we have this perspective to be able to see how exhausting and how futile and how tight and how heavy that is. We can't see it when we've got no perspective initially. It's just the way we are. But we gain perspective in this quiet, as you very well know, because you're all doing it. I really like, and several of us have said this this, on this retreat, but this, this phrase about the price we pay to do that is very heavy price. It's a high price. 
and the price is what is seen. And it's the seeing of the price we're paying, the dukkha, the stress, the exhaustion. It's the seeing of the price that is the key. When we see over and over and then get deeper and deeper this cost to our systems, we, our system doesn't want to do it. We don't have to will ourselves or trick ourselves or cajole ourselves not to do of the striving and the chasing and the avoiding. We just stop wanting to because it is the problem itself. It starts to thin out and fall off. We don't do it. We don't let it go. We can't. It just loses its power. It loses its vitality. We're not so in the grip of our reactive way, the way we've always done it. That's all. That's all there is. There isn't some other great, wonderful, big bang that happens. There's just less struggle. It's easy to miss. We really want something big and wonderful and profound. Choirs of angels. It's not like that. It's just peaceful. It's just a relief. It's almost ordinary. Oftentimes it's so ordinary that we don't even realize that we're in the absence of struggling. But when we are in the absence of struggling for a moment or however many moments, the actual ability that happens in that moment is the ability to to realize, to have um, recognition, to connect. And the reason we can connect and recognize others is because there's space, because we're not filling it up with self-concern. And when there's that spaciousness, that's all that's happening at my end, the space, which is a a room, is is a big heart. And into this big, spacious, open, warm thing, this heart, can come another. I don't even do that either. But this is just possible. There's space now. So then, oh, look at you. I see you. Can happen. I was separating myself from you by trying to be nice to you. By trying to impress you and have you hear me or whatever. The busyness is is full of meing. And when that doesn't, there's all this room in the world for all beings, whoever happens to be there. This is how freedom from that struggling sense of me, that preoccupation, freedom from it manifests compassion, manifests kindness, manifests appreciative joy. It can't help but do that because there's room for the other. When the other's here, if the other's struggling, there's going to be compassion because how else would one respond to struggle? when one realizes it. The only reason we don't is we don't realize. There's so much struggle in the world of every kind. It's interesting to think about it because the proximate cause of compassion is suffering. 
and there's lots of suffering in the world, but there seems to be not that much compassion. How come the suffering doesn't cause more compassion? It's because we're afraid. We're afraid and we, we don't want to open. We're busy with ourselves trying to make it okay, filling up the space. We don't have space to notice the suffering, really. Only as much as we, we think we can do something about. So this behavior, this compassionate behavior, is a fruit. It's a fruit of seeing clearly. The key is the looking, this that we're practicing. And as we see, the fruit then is the result of this openness, this, this space, this room for other. Now the fact is, which however much we hear it and however much we know, the fact is that there are 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. We know that fact. We hear it all the time. This too shall change. We, you know, we know the theory, but we do not live as though we know. I probably said this to you already, but I say it frequently. I have to say it to myself. We really don't go around as though that's the way it is. We go around as though half of that's fine and the other half of it isn't actually. It's, that's not right. It's not supposed to go down as well as up. It's only supposed to go up. There's a mistake. Something's wrong. Something needs a little tweaking to make it okay. It's not supposed to be troublesome. Where did we get that idea? So, when there's some wisdom, some spaciousness in us, and we look at how we behave, we humans behave, we see actually that there is a small amount of the time, peace, happiness, joy, love, kindness, there's lots of those moments. And when seen with that open heart that understands completely, there's mudita, that's the response. When there's ease and joy and light, there's mudita for it. The response in here for that, that's what mudita is. But a lot of the time we're struggling, first and second noble truth, because we don't believe in those four vicissitudes that are those four. And so we endlessly are trying to improve on them and make them be the other four. And that is exhausting, and that is struggling. And so when that is seen, that behavior that we're always doing, when that is seen clearly, the response is compassion. And that's what we do most of the time. And you see that. You watch yourself here. Every little that comes through your mind is like an attempt to mitigate some of those eight, you know, four, those some struggle or other. Something's not quite right, so I wanted something else. Over and over and over we respond that way. And gradually we learn we don't need to. We catch ourselves responding after shorter and shorter periods. We catch ourselves just with the impulse of wanting, oh no, it's okay. We see that. William Blake. 
excess of sorrow laughs. You know when somebody laughs till they cry, right? Excess of joy weeps. Joys impregnate. Sorrows bring forth. Albert Camus, there is no sun without shadow. And it is essential to know the night. It isn't wrong. So as we watch ourselves doing this over and over again, initially, of course, we know it's hard to see all these endless little attempts, always efforting to try and improve on something. But we begin to see it's actually so sweet. We're so dear. We want to be happy. (laughs) We're trying. We're trying and we're trying. We're really so good. Everything, all these things we're trying to do, it's, it's the dearest thing. It's just that the way we're doing it doesn't work. It works, that's the trouble, it does work, but it doesn't work very well or for very long. So we, we begin to see, initially we're horrified or we're embarrassed or like, oh no, I can't believe I've done it again. We, you know, we, we resist seeing how we are. But as we get used to seeing more and more how we are, we're able to say, oh look, I've done it again. I've blown it again. I forgot that again. I slammed that door again. I just didn't realize. And we can let that truth of our all of our little foibles, more easily in. We can allow ourselves to see, and the more we can, the more we can be okay with it. We can be okay with our neurosis and our silly little quirks and all of our little needy things. All our coping mechanisms, we see their coping mechanisms. They're they're ways of trying to hold ourselves carefully in all of the challenges. And we begin to actually quite like ourselves. It's amazing. For any one of you, and most of you, this is true, who don't so easily like and encourage and think you're doing great, it's much easier to go like, no. To feel inadequate, not to feel up to the task. It's such an amazing thing for this process to gradually allow us to actually make friends with ourselves. It's okay. This is what we do. We cope. (laughs) We do really well, considering. That's such a radical thing for most of us. When we can do that, just say, oh yeah, well, I didn't mean to do that that way. I was just, I didn't realize. Hold that with that much kindness. That is compassionate. That response is compassionate. The compassion grows as a fruit of understanding, seeing clearly. It's not separate. It's not a thing to do. It's just the seeing clearly that brings more wisdom means that's, that's how we function. And what we see as we keep looking, all the struggling, 
all the efforting, all the fleeing of the mind off to something else, planning, designing, is just it is the proof right there and then that our strategy isn't working. Because if it were working, we wouldn't have to keep on and on and on and on and on doing something else. We'd be okay, but we aren't. So we have to do the next thing and the next thing. It's obviously not working. Many of you know this little brief. Um, I heard it as a chant by um, Soyo Rinpoche. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. Exhausted, I love that word. I like the way he says it with his Tibetan accent. Exhausted mind, beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thoughts. It's neurotic. But we have no other strategy until we learn this strategy, and so we just keep on and on. The freedom is freedom from doing it that way. So here we are, learning this other way. And one of the ways that I picture us growing in this new strategy is I picture that I become two of me. I remain the little one, the one that's always been floundering around, studying and being so busy and working so hard at trying to make everything okay, which I do very well. I'm a very overcompensating kind of striving person. And, uh, and then this other one, this bigger, wiser one, who's kind of somehow lurking over my shoulder, watching myself, seeing myself. And this one, this wiser part of me, is the one that I'm growing in practice here. And as it grows, and I've described it this way with numbers of you we've spoken together, as this one, this bigger one, with a broader view, a wiser view, is a kinder one. As it grows, the little one, in relationship, is less in charge, is less powerful, becomes sweeter, becomes more innocent, becomes more acceptable, even becomes likable. Occasionally, it's quite sweet. <laughs> in the eyes of this bigger one. Before there was a bigger one with these kinder eyes, there was just this little one struggling away. That was the story of me. But having this other perspective, it's like I can hold myself. And many of you have been talking in these same figures of speech. And some of you have actually been holding hands with the little one and talking to her and making friends and listening to what she has to tell you. This bigger one, this capacity, is, the, is this wise, kind, deep wisdom that is ours too, but that we weren't aware of and we didn't listen to. We now begin to listen to. So we discover that we, we inside of ourselves, have both these capacities, the one to be angry or anxious or the victim of circumstance, and the one who can hold that one and say, yeah, you're angry. It's just a way of describing mindfulness, but I like the benevolence and the kindness and the feeling of um, security that comes from thinking of that ability to see clearly as actually a being who's friendly. 
me. Wherever in our world, in our normal day-to-day, -day, wherever we go, world, we meet people, the things we do, wherever do we hear the instruction to turn right straight towards your pain? Almost everything we hear is how to get away. If you go off and go to this lovely place with these people and learn this, then it'll be better. Everything is some form of a... In our world, in, the, in our survival world. And, and even further, not just turn towards your pain, but who else says, and get really, really familiar with it. <laughs> really close. Get in there. It's completely radical. It's totally counterintuitive. We think, no, 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 no. This yet is what we're being taught here. Not just our pain, anything. Be with whatever's happening. But of course, it's easy for us to be with what's pleasant. We want to do that, but we don't want to. Those other four vicissitudes at all. So first of all, to even think that's at all reasonable, we need teachings, we need teachers, we need companionship because it's too hard initially but as we begin to do it we discover I'm actually just doing the best I can here I'm allowed to be a mere human who's got limits we discover our own compassion we discover that what seems so impossible to face isn't as impossible as we thought it's not so scary after all we never gave it a chance before. As we begin to do this journey, as you all know very well, we, we increasingly become confident that it's A, doable, and B, helpful. The evidence just keeps revealing itself to us because we keep looking. And as our faith increases, then our ability to keep doing it even more increases. And so the whole thing, as you know, snowballs. What we have tended to do when it comes to being with whatever difficulties there, anxiety, worry, just deep little feelings of squirminess, right through to full-blown fear or pain or anger or hurt or, or whatever... What we tend to do, if we turn towards it, which usually is by mistake, but here we're actually encouraging ourselves to, is we immediately add, oh no, on top of it, right? We're like, oh, we try and explain it or justify it or blame somebody or something. We don't just say, oh, my goodness, look at that. We leap right in because we think, if we have to face it, then we at least have to somehow make it a little bit better. We add. We add. That's me jumping in there, doing my little number with it in some way, mitigating it somehow. This is what the Buddha called adding the second dart. The first dart is whatever it is, and the second one is like, oh no, on top. A double wounding. 
we're doing that part. We don't have to do that part. We just do it because we think that will help. It's innocent of us, but it doesn't help. Makes it worse. So the only way, actually, to be able to do this task, go there, allow this, whatever it is, to be with you, even get really close to it, get really to understand it. The only way we can do this, because it's often so difficult, but it's also such a habitual thing to not do it, is to have a refuge of this big one who can hold the little one and say, it's okay, it's just anger. Look, it's anger, look, see? It's that wise one, it's that, the, the, the very skill we're growing, that mindfulness, that ability to know and see, tenderly, steadily, gently, that awareness itself that can do it. Without that, we can't do it. It's so counterintuitive and it's way too scary. But as we grow in this awareness, this is our refuge, this is the way we can do this radical meeting with, opening to, and getting familiar with whatever it is we've otherwise been running away from. And this awareness is compassion. It's a kindness. Sometimes we may think it's being a little bit brutal and rubbing our noses in it or whatever. But actually, we have to see, to understand... I was a midwife, some of you know. I probably even said it on this retreat. And when you're a midwife, there's a lot of pain, a lot of the process. And most of the time people hire midwives. And most of my practice was we were outside the law and so people had to actually come and hire us. It wasn't paid for by the government, which it is now. And so they had to really want us. And, uh, and those who really wanted midwifery care were usually having their first child. So there was the fear of the unknown and on top of just the regular process, which itself is, is challenging enough. And so, a lot of the role of the midwife is to say, yes, when the person in the difficulty wants to say, yikes, help, out of here, fix me, somehow, do something. Get rid of it. Knock me out. I don't care what you do, people will say. <laughs> I remember one woman... I said, well, if we go down, it was a sunny summer day, and we on a deck, if we go down these little few steps here, and then we can go here. And she says, well, why? Why would I go there? And I said, well, we could go around here and go into the bedroom. Why? Why would we go into the bedroom? <laughs> well, you might want to lie down. Why would I want to lie down? <laughs> so the role, the role, I mean, my role there is to say, it's hard, isn't it? painful. Yes, that was painful. That one was really a big one. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. To hold steady, to be able to allow it, to model the possibility because it's so not the way we want to deal with it. That's, it's compassion. That's what it is. To turn towards and to say, yes, look at that. takes away the second dark completely. Reduces the experience then, hugely, 
from being this scary, overwhelming thing to something that, oh, oftentimes is relatively manageable. So there are some aspects to doing this which are useful to flush out different characteristics that are components of compassion. And one of them, as you know very well, is uh, virya, courage. It takes a certain gutsiness to do this when it's completely against our you know, intuition and habit and it's scary we, or embarrassing or something. So it takes a certain willingness, a certain gumption. I love this. I, as you know, I like words. Courage comes from the French word cœur, and cœur means heart, to take heart or to lose heart. You're, if you have courage or you don't, you know, you've, you lose heart in something, your heart withers. <laughs> I don't think I'm up for the task. That heart, is a, it's a buoyancy, it's a powerhouse. To take heart, to be encouraged. It takes courage to do this. It's difficult. Sometimes it's really difficult. Sometimes it's really scary. Sometimes it's really painful. Loss. It takes courage. It also takes a considerable degree of um, honesty. And we want to to dress things up and make them prettier or explain them away or something, mess around. And it's actually such a truth thing. It's like this is actually how it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Facing the facts. Takes courage to be able to see the truth, to be able to allow things this, to face it. Yep. I did do that. I do do that. I do have this weakness. No way. There's no moving if we can't say this is so. There was a friend of mine a few years ago now, um, a couple, but I was friends with the husband of the couple. We worked together. And, and, uh, and he contracted um, liver cancer and it killed him. He was very, very close to his wife. And um, as he got more sick, well, all the time of his, the whole process of his dying, she could not face it. She couldn't let herself feel it. She was very afraid. And so she was completely in denial. And her way of being with him to help him was to cheer him up. You're getting better. You're looking good. He's looking yellower and yellower. Right through. And towards the very end, it was actually the last time I saw him, the day before he died, he was now in the hospital. And uh, I was visiting. And I went with her. And uh, we went to visit him. And he looked at me. And he said to me, and what is the end of the story? And before I could speak, she jumped up and bent over him and said, the end of the story is you're going to get better and we're going home tomorrow. And I didn't say anything. And I still carry this regret. For her and for her sake, she didn't want to hear the end of the story. It was bad enough to be facing it. But he wanted to hear somebody say, and she's going to be all right, and you're going to die soon. 
and you've lived a good life or whatever, but I couldn't say it. She didn't want me to and didn't let me and I didn't. And I can always say, well, it's because she didn't let me and it's true, but I still wish I could have said the truth because he was just wanting to hear it. She wouldn't let anyone else say it either because of her own fear. So I regret that he, he couldn't be allowed that degree of honesty. Hard as it may be. So there's another aspect of this. Compassion. And this is, um, it's a steadiness. It isn't just the ability to turn towards what we don't want to and to be honest enough and gutsy enough to do it. We have to stay there. Oftentimes we have to hang out there and just let ourselves feel and feel what this is. For the process to be able to move and reveal itself and for us to relax and open, it takes sustaining power. This would be uh, tolerance, patience, steadying, conti. This doesn't mean, you know, gritting your teeth and toughing it out and hating it all the time. That's not opening and softening. Just that you're not in charge of how long this may be. Processes have their time. So there's a, a degree of surrender that doesn't mean submission. It doesn't mean letting it roll on you. But it means a, an ability to keep going for however long. This too we're learning. This steadying we're learning. And then there's the um, aspect of all of this which um, we've done a little, uh, one of the afternoons we've talked a little about, um, forgiveness. And this itself is a whole topic which I'm not going to take the time to go into in depth here. But actually, really, forgiveness comes about through understanding. When we see and we, we realize how this is and what's really happening and how did this occur and how this caused this caused this, we see the truth of anatta, we see the truth of conditionality, and that because of these conditions, this is what's occurring. And when we understand that it's like that, as Sylvia Borstein says, it's, like, it's maybe awful, but it's lawful. It makes sense. It doesn't make it nice, but it makes sense. It's like, yeah, well, how could it not be this way, actually? If some other circumstance was happening, then maybe the the outcome would be different. But it's this way because all of these things have come together to make this happen this way. And when we can see by our steady gaze, as our wisdom grows, we see how things unfold and how, yeah, that's right. That's what we mean by forgiveness. We can forgive ourselves for behaving in the ways we do because we understand we do them because we have this kind of personality and these kind of parents and we didn't sleep that much last night and this and this and that and my blood sugar's going down and so I feel bummed out. It's perfectly lawful. This is a, an ability to say, um, to accept it. Not to make it right or appropriate or depending on what the, the it is, but to have the space to say, yeah, it does make sense. Mm-hmm. To forgive is meaning, meaning to, 
to allow it to be that way, not to be in conflict and say, I wish it shouldn't have happened, should never have happened. It's the opposite of that. And another supporting actor in this play is equanimity. Equanimity. Donald's going to talk about equanimity pretty soon at greater depth. Um, I was teaching with another teacher a little while ago, earlier this year, who had a lovely metaphor for equanimity, which I had not heard before, which I really like. It's It's the heavy keel in a yacht, a sailing yacht. The depth that keeps a sense of stability. If, if, you know, canoes don't have keels, right? And so they're very tippy, very risky. But a big yacht with a big keel is not going to flip around much at all. Whatever the waves are doing, it keeps that stability. It's a deep weight. It's a groundedness. I and mean, if we're feeling upset, you know, any time, any of us, we're feeling all upset, what we want to do is ground ourselves, feet on the ground, you know, go low to the ground, that feeling, that to stabilize ourselves. So when we're dealing with things which are difficult, we need a lot of stabilizing, we need a lot of grounding. In miscellaneous ways, there's lots of ways to be grounded. One of the other ways I think of when I think of equanimity is... um, What stabilizes us is to put whatever the situation is that we're going through, having to deal with, in a big context. And one of the simplest ways to do that is to instead of say, I, whatever the story is that I'm dealing with, is to say, we. When this happens, we react this way. When this happens, we feel like this. We human beings with these tender hearts. This is how it is for us. It just puts us in among all of us. And then the, the, the drama that is affecting me and my own struggle is diluted in a way. It's shared, at least. And that brings a certain sense of stability. And forgive me if I'm repeating myself, because I can't remember what I said three weeks ago, but one of the things I would say to the women I was with when I was supporting them in labor, from time to time, I chose my moments, I would say... Uh, that there were six million other women right now doing the same thing. And some of them found that great great comfort, and some of them didn't want to hear about six million other people. (laughs) It's about me. (laughs) But there is a way of like, yeah, it's what it takes. We all know this. We're all doing this together, this life, learning these, these ways. It's reassuring oftentimes. And that's that that feeling of reassurance that comes from that. That's the feeling of equanimity. And one more specific little contributing player in being able to be equanimous, uh, compassionate, is kindness. To kind, be kind. We've, we've, all of us been talking to you every afternoon mostly about different aspects of metta and when it's used and how, how it can be helpful. It's absolutely essential. Whenever there's any struggle, whatever degree, whatever the story, we need kindness. That's this big one here. Ah, oh. oh, this is tough. We cannot allow it to be in. We can't keep out of the way of trying to fix and change if we are not reassured. 
I've talked about that. We've all talked a lot about joy and ways to gladden the heart in order to relax and so on, soothe it in whatever way, so many ways. When there's kindness in us, when we remember to be kind with the fact that we're struggling and we're in a situation that's challenging or difficult, we become soothed. That helps reduce that need to make it different, that helps us allow and accept, which allows us to be with the situation instead of against it. Kindness connects. Kindness connects us with ourselves. Kindness allows us to have some connection with the situation or the other person. It, it allows the heart not to be hard, not to be so anxious. So then we can be with the situation, with the person, with ourselves. Rather than removed or avoidant or mad at or whatever else we may do. Just now, before, uh, before the talk, at supper time, um, there's a visiting teacher in the neighborhood whose name is Stephen Batchelor. Some of you know him. He's doing a talk right now down the hill. I'm glad you're not all down there listening to him. I know you couldn't, but <laughs> if I weren't doing this talk, I might have snuck out, though. But anyway, he was having supper with us. And he, um, we were talking about Buddhism, needless to say, the Dharma in different ways. And one of the things he was saying, um, which I thought was a timely comment, considering I wanted to talk about this topic tonight, he was saying uh, that in the teachings of the Buddha, there is not an emphasis in the Theravadan teachings on compassion. There isn't a lot of explicit instruction. There's a small amount on all the Brahma Viharas. And so I was thinking about this, and, and Stephen was saying, however, what there is, is all through, of course, the entire canon describing him and his teachings, he spent his entire life being compassionate. It wasn't explicit, do it this way. It was how to be he was the embodiment of compassion. And what he taught was wisdom. He taught how to see, how to look and how to see, how to train our minds to see. And the result, even though he didn't make that explicit, the result of the seeing and the understanding is this fruit of a spacious heart that connects, that cares, that responds appropriately. And he did his whole life. Forty-five years after his awakening, he spent his... That's all he did was go around, be helpful, be a compassionate being all the time. All day, every day. Forty-five years. When he died, it is said that his attendant, Ananda, was so was so sad. And he kept saying about the Buddha who just died, he kept saying, he who was so kind, he who was so kind. He didn't say he who was so brilliant or he who was so clear. He said he who was so kind.
there um, are some very skillful explanations, teachings by uh, Nayaponika Thera, who was um, a monk in Sri Lanka in the last century, who talks about the role of compassion in with the other Brahma-viharas, metta, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. And he says them so well. I'm just going to read you a couple of these things about the role of compassion with the others. Unbounded love, metta, God's compassion against turning into partiality prevents it from making discriminations by selecting or excluding. So it prevents it from falling into one-sidedness. Compassion prevents love or metta and appreciative joy from forgetting that while both are enjoying or giving temporary and limited happiness, there still exists at the same time dreadful states of suffering in the world. keeps them sober. Compassion doesn't allow metta and sympathetic joy mudita to shut themselves up against the wide world by confining themselves to a narrow sector of it, just the fun parts. It prevents love and, and mudita joy from turning into states of self-satisfied complacency, which if you're just going to be joyful all the time, you can get quite complacent, I would imagine, with, within a jealously guarded petty happiness. Compassion stirs and urges metta to widen its sphere, and it stirs and urges joy, appreciative joy, to search for fresh nourishment, helping them both to grow into boundless states. We can get attached, attached to happiness and love and everything's groovy and just get very little, in you know, a little bubble, live in a little island somewhere. Sympathetic joy holds compassion back from becoming overwhelmed. Because when things are difficult, we can so easily get overwhelmed by that. So we need the joy to balance it, to remember the joys and the sorrows, not just the one. Joy keeps compassion away from melancholic brooding without purpose. From a futile sentimentality that merely weakens and consumes the strength of the mind and heart. This, of course, is the danger when we face what's difficult. So we really need to count our blessings, to see the sun, to lie on the grass, to listen to the frogs, so that we don't become weakened by, withered by, the struggle if there's a big struggle going on. And equanimity, of course, as I already said, and as Donald will say more, is uh, it puts everything in a context that expands the story, the big story, and then therefore reduces, again, the overwhelming possibility when we face difficulty. I'll end with a few wise words from somebody else. This was T.S. Eliot from the Four Quartets. I said to my soul, this is about patience, I said to my soul, be still and wait 
without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be the love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be light, and the stillness the dancing. This is Desmond Tutu. This is at the um, Truth and Reconciliation hearings, you know, that they had in South Africa that were so important and precious. So he spoke of the alchemy of the council, and he said, when we had listened to the testimony of people who'd suffered grievously, and it all worked itself out, to the point where they were ready to forgive and embrace the perpetrators, I would frequently say, I think we ought to keep quiet now. We're in the presence of something holy. We ought metaphorically take off our shoes because we're standing on holy ground. That's not possible without truth, of course. And then Leonard Cohen, just to end with. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. I think I'll just have to go on one more. There's this, this reminds me, this, this is a story of the crack that the light gets in. It's such a beautiful story. I'm sure many of you have heard it over the years, but I'll repeat it. As best I can. It's a story, a true story of a young man who um, got cancer in his leg and he had to have his leg amputated. Do some of you know this story? You must have heard it, as many of you. So he, he uh, had to have his leg amputated. So here's a young, fit young man. And um, it was a desperate thing for him and, you know, very hard work. And he went through a, a lot of healing. And during the healing process, he did a lot of uh, art therapy. And uh, of many drawings, one drawing he drew was of a vase, a flower vase with this great crack. Fast forward some time later, some years later, he was visiting the place where he had been a patient, visiting as a compassionate friend for people going through difficulties, and he was visiting a young woman who um, had just had both her breasts removed, double mastectomy. And he went in to visit her with his prosthetic leg and and her face is turned to the wall. And he tries to speak to her and connect with her, and she's not available. And so he says different things and tries a few things, and then eventually he decides, he risks this, he turns the radio up, he takes off his false leg, and he stands on one leg and he dances to the music. And she just like turns and looks at him, and she says to him, man, if you can dance, I can sing. A, top, a happy ending for, they ended up marrying <laughs> but that wasn't the point of the story the point of the story of, <laughs> that's a nice happy ending is he uh, at some point goes back to his therapist and he's going through his process and looking at his, his, 
pieces of uh, drawings and so on. And, uh, and as he's looking through them, in this sort of integrating time with her, he sees this one of the vase. And he takes this one and he says, oh, this one isn't complete. It's not finished. And he takes the drawing and then he grabs a, a bright yellow color and he starts putting out all these huge streaks of light coming out of the crack. Without the crack, he would never have been who he was now. So I'll just read Leonard Cohen again. I don't know if I need to need it. I think we all know this one. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Thank you. I hope it's helpful.